Welcome to Coastal Conversations, a monthly program that deals with major issues confronting the nation's coastal areas, marine and Great Lakes. This program is made possible through the generosity of the Roddenberry Foundation. I'm Jerry Schubel with the Aquarium of the Pacific, and I'm your host. Today we're going to explore Earth's largest and least well-known medicine cabinet, the World Ocean. I'm joined today by Dr. John Williams of the City of Hope. Dr. Williams is an Associate Professor of Molecular Medicine, Director of the X-ray Crystallography Core Facility, and Co-Director of the Drug Discovery and Structural Biology Core. He's a distinguished scholar, teacher, mentor, researcher. Early in his career, he was an Associate Research Scientist at the Osborne Marine Science Lab at the New York Aquarium in Brooklyn, New York. John, welcome. Let's start first by having you give a brief description of the City of Hope. We have viewers from across the country and in Canada, as well as the U.S., and some may not know about the City of Hope. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, the City of Hope is a special little hospital that's out in the um, hinterlands of, of L.A. It was set up as a, um, as a tuberculosis unit in 1930, or 1913. This was before consumption was um, before consumption was was cured, and so at the time, City of Hope had some of the better um, cure rates, and eventually the sulfa drugs came along, and and tuberculosis was was effectively cured. At that point, City of Hope went on and became a cancer research hospital, um, and developed a very interesting research institute. One of the things that it started to work on was uh, cancer genetics. Um, there, the um, theory of evolution by gene duplication uh, occurred by Sushino Ono. Um, the discovery of diabetes and some of the critical markers for diabetes was also discovered there. And uh, some of the very pioneering um, molecular techniques that really ended up giving um, biotechnology its start, including recombinant insulin, as well as um, the production of monoclonal antibodies. So it is now a part of a larger hospital where we have uh, really uh, the sickest of the six where we're really trying to help these cancer patients. Uh, we have a basic science, which is the Beckman Research Institute. Um, that's where I do most of my work. Um, we have a translational unit, which is the cancer center. And then we have the hospital, which is where the medicine is distributed. And so there's a very cohesive uh, group where we go back and forth and trying to get people the help that they need. And it's a beautiful, beautiful campus. We had the pleasure of visiting you not long ago, and we're honored to have this partnership with you. John, tell us, why is research on cancer so important? Where does cancer rank among the major threats to human health? Um, cancer is one of these um, diseases that affects everybody. It's number two in terms of, of deaths in the United States right behind um, uh, heart disease. In fact, it causes more deaths than the next five leading causes of death, and so uh, it's pervasive. Everybody knows somebody who has had cancer, and um, we just can't get around it, so we really need to be working on it and getting effective therapies. I think we have another couple of slides on this one, the, uh, the different ways of treating cancer. Co comment on this, please. Um, well, you know, we're, we haven't, we've advanced considerably, but we still have uh, room to grow. I mean, th most of the cures now are, are by surgery where you would debulk a, a tumor, or radiation where you would burn the tumor, or, or chemotherapies. And 
Uh, these are the big three, but um, we need to do better. We need to address adverse side effects. We need to be more humane, and we need to really consider the quality of life um, of people that are undergoing treatment. And what are the hallmarks of, of cancer? Well, uh, recently, um, the cancer uh, hallmarks were, were defined by uh, Weinberg. And these are how cancer cells, which are essentially self, have evaded um, the normal checks and balances. And so you evade cell death. There's, there's certain cells that, that um, when they get to a certain age, they undergo something called apoptosis. We have other um, signals like DNA damage. Uh, we're all familiar with UV. That creates uh, damage in the DNA, and that could also cause cancer. Um, we have uh, things such as evading the immune system. So a cancer cell can be made, but it figures out a way of hiding from the human's um, immune system, and that stops, or that doesn't allow the, the cancer to stop, and, and you get metastases, and that's usually the bad part. And what does all of this have to do with the world ocean and marine life? Tell us how marine life compares with terrestrial life as a source of medicine and what maybe some of the most promising marine animals are in terms of potential sources of cancer-fighting drugs. Sure. So um, marine life is extraordinarily diverse. Um, we have uh, far more species in the oceans than we do on terrestrial, uh, on, on land, and so there's a, a large number of interactions that are going on. Um, and so, you know, there's places, uh, special places, such as the, the reefs. Um, and, and this picture here kind of shows you one of these special places. There is almost no nutrients at all in, in a marine coral uh, reef. That's why you can see so far under the land. And yet, you need to be able to dominate an area. You need to be able to colonize. You need to defend yourself. And on top of this, while you're an animal, such as these corals are here, you actually have to defend yourself from predation. You have to worry about animals and, and, and other molecules, I'm sorry, biologics uh, coming up and, and actually attacking you. And so these guys here, they're living in an aqueous environment and they're trying to protect themselves and they're trying to colonize an area. In doing so, they've produced some of the most amazing, most complicated and sophisticated molecules and they're very, they're ultra potent. They're, they're things that can stop, uh, stop a fish in its tracks. And so if you compare some of the uh, marine products in terms of their, their potential with terrestrial products, explain what this slide is showing. Well, uh, this is the slide that really inspired me uh, quite a few years ago. Um, if you take any animal and, or any plant or any bacteria or any fungus that you might isolate, you, you can actually extract something out of those, and you can ask if that molecule, if from that extraction, are there molecules that actually have some kind of a therapeutic or biological activity? And when uh, this, this study was done uh, quite a while ago, but when it was done, you can see that the, the marine animals, and particularly corals and sponges and nudibranchs, uh, sea slugs, the chances of actually finding really potent chemicals was about seven times higher than finding it in any other source, and this, this includes the rainforest. So these marine organisms, um, partly by uh, necessity and also just by diversity, have uh, created far more interesting molecules, are far more potent, and so your chances of actually finding something useful from the marine, or from the marine environment is much greater than you would 
in a rainforest or in the ground or other sources, traditional sources of small molecules. Thank you, John. And if any of our viewers have any questions as we go along, you can email those to us, and at the end of the program, we'll try to answer those. So there's the, the address to send them to on your screen, and we look forward to your questions. All right, how did we first discover that marine animals uh, could be this, these sources of medicine? Sure. I think this has been known for quite a while. I mean, uh, people even in the Hawaiian Islands would pick up a sponge and, and realize that that would actually cause death. And so some of these long, uh, valved names of things have, have been identified. I think one of the earlier ones was like palytoxin, which is perhaps one of the most toxic compounds you could possibly know. So people have known this, shamans have known about these different sources, um, but it was really uh, people going and exploring and, and asking the question, does this molecule or does this organism produce something that is interesting? And so you go out and you can collect these things. Um, and it could be simple as a sponge, it could be um, a, a, a sea hare, it could be anything that's there in the marine environment. Uh, essentially, you have to take a lot of it, you have to grind it up, and you actually have to extract it. You will take these and, and take some water, or you take some organic solvents, and those kind of separate uh, one from the other. Um, and then when you get those separations, you fractionate these. So you, you would allow those, you would take different fractions, and then you start asking the question, does that fraction actually kill something? Does it kill a cell that you're particularly interested in? And in this case, you know, we would, particularly at a place like the City of Hope, we'd be looking for mole uh, molecules that could kill tumor cells and differentially kill a tumor cell over a normal cell. And so we have large panels of cells. We take these, these different fractions and we ask the question, does it kill a tumor cell? Does it leave a normal cell alone? Once we have that answer, if that fraction contains something, then we would go and start to purify that. We would actually get down to uh, this, the individual molecule itself, and, and then at that point, we would try to do some chemical characterization. And that would include stuff like NMR and mass spec and just trying to see what that structure is. And we'd take that and we'd actually ask in the universe of all molecules, is this something unique? Is this something different? And then we go to somebody like my colleague Dave Horn, and can you can you synthesize this? And and some of the great organic synthetic efforts um, in the past century have been have been trying to duplicate marine natural products. At that point, we would go back and we'd ask, what is it actually doing biologically? We'd like to functionally characterize those molecules, and and from those hallmarks, at, uh, the slide that was up a little bit earlier. Some of these we know would involve a certain signaling pathway in these cells, and does that molecule hit that signaling pathway, or does it do something else? And so that's essentially um, the way that we go about these things. And one of the, the big points that I think that you make is that ocean exploration is very important. So little of the ocean has been explored, and here's the world's greatest, largest, most prolific medicine cabinet. We don't know what we're losing. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, let me say, there's terrific efforts going on at this point, but to get any of these molecules, you have to go and, for instance, take a kilogram of a sponge. And sponges, they, they grow slow. They, they can get populated with different kinds of bacteria, and these different bacteria may be important in making that certain chemical. Um, they fluctuate terrifically, so you may go to one sponge, find that molecule you want, you may go back six months later, and because the sponge has gone through some kind of exchange, it won't be there anymore. So. 
So this is another strong argument for exploring the ocean. And we spend a fraction of a percent on explore, exploring the ocean of what we spend on space. And it, it's not that we spend too much on space, but we certainly yeah. spend way too little on the ocean. Absolutely. I think um, not only, I mean, we're, we're not spending enough in all, all forms of research, but certainly when you have something as diverse as a marine environment and you have all of these interacting uh, biomes uh, that are, are, are environments that are going on, undoubtedly they're, they're sampling all of nature. And some of that sampling of nature is going to be directly related to health and something that we can use to take care of these problems of cancer, to try to, to cure people and our loved ones that, that we see every day. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this field. And as I mentioned when I was introducing you, you worked at the New York Aquarium a long time ago. Yeah, so this is kind of a, a, of a funny story. I, um, I was in New York City. I was working at Columbia Presbyterian, and, um, and my wife, uh, to be wife, uh, had moved in, and, and we'd spend the weekends and I, uh, just kind of searching New York City, and we'd go to this one aquarium and, or p uh, plant store, and there was aquariums in there, and we, we really had kind of decided that we, we liked these fish and maybe we should have an aquarium. But our eyes always took us to the marine aquariums. And um, we'd always kind of think, what if, what if? And I was very fortunate to have a colleague sitting next to me. And he's well known in the reef community named uh, Craig Bingman. And so he um, absolutely was one of the world's experts in, in understanding the chemistry of aquariums and, and growing corals. And so we, we took a jab at it. And um, we started uh, growing some corals. And what we realized is uh, not only did it speak to my love of chemistry and science? Uh, but these things were beautiful, and they were, they're living, and they would grow. And what really took me by surprise is that when we were trying to propagate these corals so that we could make more of them, anytime we cut these corals in the tank to, to make a, a, a new growth, um, all the other corals would shut down. And it was at that point everything kind of dawned on me. My god, there's, there's something being released from these. It's completely affecting everything in, in the system, and that must mean that there must be a chemical communication going on. And it was at that point that I really started to explore um, the marine environment and, and became really, really interested uh, in knowing that there are all these fantastic molecules to be explored. And, and th this process that you've described to determine whether uh, any marine animal has a cancer-fighting drug, it sounds like a fairly inefficient process. First of all, would you like to add anything to the process? And then secondly, I'd like you to comment on are there ways that we could increase the efficiency? Yeah, so it is inefficient. Um, the, the, the problem is, is there's a lot of chemicals um, and there's lots of organisms. And so you, we need to get enough molecules so that we can um, isolate these molecules. And that usually, I'm sorry, we need to get enough organisms so we can actually isolate these molecules, which means, you know, going down to the ocean and, and pulling these up. And that in itself is, is not necessarily environmentally sustainable. Um, and on top of this, um, and uh, it's not really well known, at least not outside the community, almost nothing in the ocean is, is culturable. Most of the bacteria, most of the fungus, most of these small uh, uh, organisms that actually live inside of these sponges or live inside of the corals can actually be cultured. And it's a lot like a seed, you know, you, you can only grow a plant in the right environment and the right fertilizer. And so uh, one of the things I think that we need to do is we need to start looking at 
ways of aquaculturing? Can we grow sponges? Can we grow corals? And can we actually use those almost, if you will, as the soil to, to grow these other bacteria? And then can we actually bring in the forces um, of the biotech uh, revolution where we can sequence things uh, rapidly and quickly to start actually looking at the structures and start extracting that information? And maybe through a combination of of some very high-end genetics and, and some very fancy aquaculture, and can we actually start getting the modules and start making these molecules? And we're delighted that, that we have a very small pilot project to try to do that. We're very excited. Sponges and corals, and uh, then you guys will determine whether they have any potential. Absolutely. And we're going to wait for those big checks for, to come in from Big Pharma. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's, let's see if we can find something with some good bioactivity, and then we can uh, take it from there. All right. So the, the, could you hazard a guess the, of the percentage of marine animals that have been, uh, that exist, that, that may have biological potential for, in terms of medicines, or the, the percentage that we've actually tested to date? I think we probably have only tested a fraction of everything we, that we do have, but I think um, maybe more telling than that is that each time you go back and you look for one of these corals or these sponges, there's a chance that it's already exchanged out one of the zooanthellae, one of the endosymbionts, and so the whole chemical structure can change. And so it's not that it's just how many have we done, but it's also a moving target that's evolving according to, the, um, according to its environment as well. So we know very little about the potential, but except that we know it's very great. And what, what are the biggest impediments to accelerating our search for marine animals that, ha that might benefit humans in terms of fighting disease? Is it money? Is it what? What are the impediments? Um, well, I think it is money. Um, I mean, the thing is, is that people are doing science, and and there is a whole um, a whole army of people out there ready to do this kind of, of work. But uh, getting the money to, to fund the research to be able to do this is, is one of the the issues. Another one of the issues is just recognizing how valuable this is. Um, it doesn't seem like many people actually understand where drugs come from. It's not. Uh, it's not something that's magical. It takes time and effort, and it takes some imagination, and it actually takes real basic scientists, and it takes basic scientists in a, in a chemical laboratory, in a biological laboratory, and the scientists that are out in the oceans, and, and, and that kind of emerging. And so uh, it always comes down to money, but I think that is part of the issue. Money. Imagination, though, I think, also. and. Uh I think the imagination's out there. I mean, I, I have uh, I've been blessed or fortunate to be able to work with scientists. I, most of them are very imaginative, and and I would yeah. agree. Give us a couple of examples of uh, medicines that have been derived from the ocean that are actually being used now to fight cancer. Well, I, there's there's a lot of them, and one of the ones that I really wanted to bring up right now um, because it is really is changing the, the landscape of of cancer is uh, this dolostatin. This was discovered um, some time ago um, from somebody actually at the University of Arizona, uh, Pettit. And this is just a small molecule uh, up there on the right, and it was isolated from that sea hair right there, that um, little ugly looking guy that uh, actually chews up on, on uh, uh, cyanobacteria. And what people have done is they realize that that chemical itself is far, far too toxic just to give to humans alone. And what they've done is they've actually tethered that onto a monoclonal antibody, which is that big uh, green and bluish looking molecule on the, the left. That molecule is, is something that we're working extensively on right now at the City of Hope. But if you take that molecule, it's very, very specific. We can train that molecule so that it'll only see 
um, tumor cells. And if we can do that, and we can combine that dolostatin from the sea hair to the molecule, uh, this, this uh, antibody, we can use that to deliver these only to the tumor cells. And I think this is part of that mission. We're trying to avert, uh, avoid adverse side effects. And so this target immunotherapy is one of these cases. And using these marine organisms, because they're so toxic, is, is the other half of the equation. What, and what kinds of cancer is this being used for now? There's two right now. The um, blood cancers like uh, leukemia um, and AML. Uh, and there was one that was just approved by the FDA and another one called uh, TDM1, which was just um, approved again by the um, FDA, and that was for breast cancer. Okay, and, and uh, there are medicines from the ocean that uh, fight other things other than, than cancer. Make a comment on that, please. There's a lot of small molecules that are being used for HIV, being used for neurological diseases, being used for viral, other viruses and other um, bacterial diseases. Um, and there's other uses as well. It's not just, just molecules from the ocean. There are some other very interesting Interesting question is why, why don't uh, some marine animals uh, get skin cancer like, like we do? Um, that is a, that's a really difficult question. Uh, <laughs> it, it probably has to do a lot with not only its own physiology and, and how they, they repair DNA, but uh, also what kind of light they get to and what kind of molecules right. they, they make to, to, to block it. Well, those of us who have had skin cancer are looking to you for some help. I, I want us to talk a little bit about horseshoe crabs. Um, do they play any role in protecting human health? And if they do, what does this animal, it's been around 300 or 400 million years, uh, yes. what, how can it possibly help us? Um, so the horseshoe crab itself uh, in its blood is actually makes a, a, a compound which we call LA, um, LAL. And what this, this compound does is it actually recognizes endotoxins uh, from, from samples. So if we're making a biologic, um, a vaccine or some kind of a biologic, and particularly if it's produced in bacteria, th there's a chance of getting an endotoxin. And these endotoxins can cause sepsis and that can be lethal. And so this compound that's actually extracted from, oddly enough, the blue blood of these horseshoe crabs, this LAL, can be used to actually detect these. It's probably the most sensitive method of detecting these. And so you test the, 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 the virus or the vaccine before you actually give it to the patient to make sure that they don't have any of the endotoxins so they don't go through a septic shock and so they, so they, 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 they don't have other mitigating circumstances. And so we now have a, a fishery for these where we catch horseshoe crabs. We remove about a third of their, their blood. That's right. Uh, we release them back into nature. We give them a glass of orange juice and a cookie. <laughs> um, the survival rate is, is very high, and they get tagged so you don't capture them more than once a year. Fantastic, yeah. And over many, many decades now, we've been unsuccessful in synthesizing LAL in the laboratory. Yes, it's a... Um, it's an extraordinarily complicated molecule. There's a lot of sugar chemistries on this that are very difficult to recapture through biotechnology. Sometimes the best biotechnology is just right there. Yeah. Yeah. And over hundreds of millions of years, uh, these guys who they, they live in a bacterial soup that probably has a billion bacteria in every milliliter of seawater, yep. the, 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 those that have this mechanism uh, had a better chance of survival. They certainly had to uh, counteract all these these different microbes that were right. they're exposed to. Yeah, so I th I think it's a, it's a great great story. It is. John, do you do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to offer? Um, well, yeah, I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, 
I can speak as a scientist at City Hope. Our, our mission is to cure cancer and and keep the, the dignity of life. And I think we need more molecules. We need to be able to have access to these molecules. And I can't actually think of a, a, a more compelling way of finding these molecules in the oceans. And, and so this means we need to conserve these, the, these precious resources. Uh, there's not enough time in the day to be able to get every single thing out of these oceans. And so the conservation is absolutely critical. The way that we're doing it now is unsustainable. And so um, I just see conservation and cancer just going hand in hand, the cure of cancer and conservation. And, and beyond cancer, I mean, it's, it's for many diseases, HIV, um, other bacterial, other viral, and other, other uh, diseases that, that plight human, humankind. And I think that's why this is such a great partnership that you have at City of Hope with this aquarium, and we hope other aquariums will, will join in these kinds of efforts because we're devoted to conservation and sponges and, and corals, a lot of these are being destroyed unintentionally, but whether it's by bottom trawling or things like maybe climate change with, with coral reefs and uh, overfishing of herbivorous fish. So the and sedimentation. Coral, sedimentation, yep. coral reefs get overgrown with algae, and um, the, the, these are issues that we have to, have to deal yes, with. And, and, and we're seeing critical losses of biodiversity. Yes, yes we are. And that's, that's the issue. All right. Well, we've, this has been a, a great session. Uh, we haven't had any email questions come in. I think it must be because you were so clear <laughs> on all of, all of your answers. And uh, I want to thank my guest, John Williams, for being with me today. John is from the City of Hope. We have this partnership that's brand new with the City of Hope, and we're going to raise corals and sponges and provide them to John and his colleagues and for them to do the determinations whether they have any potential to cure cancer. I also want to thank the Roddenberry Foundation for making these programs possible and Coastal America and its 25 coastal ecosystem learning centers for distributing them. I'm Jerry Schubel for Coastal Conversations. Thank you for watching.